So have you ever bought or owned anything that was useless? I mean, just something that just was no need to have. Ging Shui is a young man who lives outside of Beijing, China. His fans sometimes call him the useless Edison. Now, why do they call him that, and why does Ging have fans? Well, he has what's known as kind of useless inventions. He makes useless things, quote-unquote, and he and his brother make videos that they put out there on the old worldwide interweb that, that kind of describe his useless things. So his fans come from watching their videos. So what kind of useless things does Ging invent? Well, he's got a meat cleaver that doubles as a smartphone case. Everybody needs one of those. He's got a meat cleaver that turns into a comb for your hair. Very nice to have on weekend nights. He has a tennis racket-sized watermelon slicer. Yes, good stocking stuffer right there. Put that on your list. He also has an earthquake-proof noodle bowl. I mean, you got to have one of those. I mean, I guess if you're in an earthquake. He also has a mallet hammer, and inside the mallet hammer is like a little case where you can put your keys in your wallet and maybe even squeeze your phone. And, and he also has a strap that goes on the mallet hammer bag, and you can put it over your shoulder. And I guess if someone tries to rob you, you can just hit them with the bag. I mean, it just sits two in one. It works. Maybe the most practical invention he has, though, is a motorcycle that has a hidden toilet seat in the seat. Yeah, uh, very good for a holiday must-have for that long, long trip over the river and through the woods to Grandma's house. You might need Ging's motorcycle. This is what he said. People say my inventions are useless, but I think there are two dimensions to usefulness, practicality and amusement. I like doing this, so it's useful. Interesting take. He says, you know what, if no one buys my stuff, it's useful because I enjoy making it. It brings me joy, so it is useful. Let me ask you a question. Do you have moments where you feel useless? You feel useless in the kitchen? You feel useless in the garage or the workshop? You feel useless in math class? Do you feel useless to the PTO, useless to the HOA, useless to your BFF? Do you feel useless to the team? Do you feel useless to the church? Do you feel useless at work, maybe useless even to the church or your family? Do you ever have moments where you feel useless? Are you feeling that way today? Are you thinking that way today? Has somebody written you off as useless? Is someone writing you off as useless? Is it because you have sinned against them or rebelled against them? Or maybe it has nothing to do with sin. Maybe somebody's writing you off just because they don't like something you said or something that you did or something that you like or something that you believe in. They, they just don't like it. And maybe they're just writing you off for something they just don't like. Now, of course, this does not include pumpkin spice, right? We do need to have a disclaimer here. You know, if someone doesn't like you because you like or have said or have done or believe in pumpkin spice, then we all have to write you off just a little bit because there's way too much pumpkin spice in the world right now, right? So a little bit of writing off might happen. But what if it's not pumpkin spice? 
And what if it's not just that they have something they don't like about you? What if it is sin and rebellion? What if somebody right now is writing you off as useless? What if someone's writing you off as untrustworthy? Or what if you're writing yourself off? What if you're writing yourself off as as useless? What if you're writing yourself off as a failure? Any hope for that? Is there any hope for our moments of feeling useless? Yes, there is. Let's see if we can find it this morning. Philemon, beginning with verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. A number of families in our church have been engaged for the last few months with Friday night high school football. And part of the dynamics of high school football on Friday night is the relationship between coaches and their players. Now, I'm on the outside looking in, but I know that one of the coaches for the team where my kids go to school, he loves the strategy of the game. Loves it. Loves looking at defensive schemes and and calling offensive plays in response. Most games, he's always up in the booth wearing headsets, talking down to the coaches on the sideline. But for uh, the last game this season, which was an away game, he wasn't in the booth. He was down on the field. And one of the things I loved was the camaraderie I saw between Coach Gibson and our quarterback, Joe. They would stand there on the sidelines, and and after every play they'd come, and they'd just stand and cover their mouths and talk about the plays and, and see what was going on. There was never any rush. It was very casual. It was almost like, you know, two friends, you know, standing out at the lake at sunset on Saturday just fishing. It was very calm. And if one of the plays didn't go right, when Joe came back over, you know, Coach Gibson, he didn't throw his clipboard down on the ground. He wasn't taking his wireless headset and throwing it in the air. You know, he, he wasn't losing it. He would just call Joe over next to him, call him by his side, and, and they'd talk a little bit, and they'd come up with the next play. Paul is, is being a good coach here. He's writing in such a way that he's calling Philemon just over to his side. He, he wants to help him call the next play. And he's already given him who the ball needs to go to on this play. And so Philemon, he, he hears Coach Paul giving him the play, and, and his first thought would have been something like this, no way, Coach. No, I'm, I'm not giving the ball to that guy. Man, he's why we lost the game last week. He's already fumbled four times in this game, and and one of those they ran back for a touchdown. I'm not getting the ball to him. Matter of fact, why have we not kicked him off the team? Now, Philemon wouldn't be quick, probably, to to listen to this play. So whose number is Paul calling on the play? He's calling a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus is not just a bad teammate. He's a reprobate. This is like a Paul Crew and the longest yard here. He's, he's an escaped convict. See, he, he ran away from Philemon's house. He was a, a forced laborer at Philemon's house, and he ran away. Forced laborer means that he was a slave. You know, oftentimes we hear the word slavery, and, and slavery in, in our culture, in our history, brings a, about the atrocities, the sinful atrocities that we know from slavery in our country and our history. But in the time of Paul, slavery was a bit different. It's been estimated by historians there were about 60 million slaves in Rome during this time. It's half the population. Almost every single house 
would have slaves. There might be dozens or maybe thousands of people connected to every single home. And whether that person was slave or free, they were responsible for the economic productivity of that home. We might say today that productivity is moved to employer and employee and a company, but not in the Roman culture. It was the house, the home was where the economy began. And that house, that home would have slaves. So how would someone end up in slavery? Well, they could end up as a slave because their nation was, was conquered in war and, and they were forced into slavery. Or they could have committed some kind of crime and, and they were forced into slavery as, as a sentencing for their crime. Or maybe they were forced into slavery just because they were born into a family of slaves. And although it's, it's odd for our culture in every sense of the word, but there were those that actually sold themselves into slavery during Paul's time. And why would they do that? Well, many slaves were part of the home in such a way that they might be the the manager of the home, they might be a a cook or a butler, or they might be a teacher, even a doctor. A slave in, in that situation might get an education. They might be able to go to school, which they couldn't if they were not a slave. All their supplies, all their needs would be met. They might even get trained in a certain profession and trade so that they actually knew something to do, especially if they ever won freedom from their slavery. So it was different. Some slaves, to be sure, were not treated so well. They were treated just as if they were just tools to be used and thrown away if they weren't good anymore. We don't know what kind of slave Onesimus was. We don't have a a whole lot of details about him or the situation. But we can kind of look at the situation and we can say that it's pretty fair to say Philemon probably was not a harsh master to his slaves. And how do we know that? Well, Paul's not just sending a letter to Philemon about Onesimus. He's sending Onesimus with the letter. So if Paul knew Philemon to be harsh and unjust, then he would have come up with another system, another plan to get this information to him. The runaway slave part of all this is what makes it difficult. See, Onesimus made the choice at some point in time to run, and it was risky. Why was it risky? Well, if he was spotted, if he was captured, if he was returned, a lot of unpleasant things could happen to him. If he was returned, he he might be beaten and forced back into his slavery position. If he returned, he might be beaten and he might be tortured and he might be sentenced to death. Or he might be beaten and they might brand him with an F. The F stood for fugitive. And then they might force him back into his slavery position, or they might take that sentence of death and immediately execute him. So running away didn't have any positives. There's there's no positives. But we don't know a lot of details about this. Paul doesn't give us the details because this is not a letter of details. This is a letter about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a letter about Jesus And even though we know very little, we we do know from this letter that Philemon only knew this about Onesimus, that he had done him wrong, that he had broken his trust, that he was costing him money, and that he stole from him. That's what we know about Onesimus. Now, this letter is 16 sentences. It's not very long. And Paul doesn't use any of his 16 sentences 
to make a case against slavery. Why would he not do that? Why would Paul not, not write something against this inhumane treatment? Why wouldn't he write something, put a political action committee together to, to do something about this injustice? Well, more than likely, the reason he didn't include that in his 16 sentences is because the message of Paul was the same as the message of Jesus, and it never changed. The message of Jesus went like this, Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Should we pray and engage in efforts to fight injustice and to protect human rights? Yes, we should by all means. In fact, one way you can do that in our community and even beyond is by praying for and investing in and being involved with ministries like Lighthouse for Life, ministries like Levy Pregnancy Care Center, ministries like The Voice of the Martyrs and others. There's plenty. Ministries that are, are seeking to say we want to be a part of showing mercy to people who are being treated inhumanely. Yes, we need to be involved. But if Onesimus received freedom from Roman slavery but was still in the chains of his sin, then he was only partially free. And if he was free politically but spiritually, he was still a prisoner, then he still had great need. And that's why Jesus spoke to the greatest need. And Paul spoke to the greatest need. They met the non-greatest need, but they spoke to the greatest need. David Curtis said this, The early church was concerned not to bring about political or cultural change per se, but to change the heart of man through the preaching of the gospel. That the life and reflection of Christ might be brought into society, heralding change not by law, but by the Spirit, the, the work of the gospel. And he says this, the message of the gospel isn't about altering a man or woman's natural physical circumstances, but in altering a person's relationship to God. Being saved does not mean that your physical and natural circumstances will immediately change. They might. They might not. Being saved, though, means that your heart and your soul are safe. Being changed and being saved means that no matter what cloud is over your life, whether it's stress, strain, fear, worry, anxiety, whatever it may be, you can still have joy. How? How can you have joy in the clouds of life, especially the really, really thick clouds? This is what Paul told the Romans, Romans 8 verse 1. There is... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are saved, you are no longer condemned. If you are saved, then you will no longer be eternally punished. If you are saved, that means you are in Christ, and there is nothing greater, and there is no greater peace, and no greater love, and no greater hope, and no greater joy than being rescued and redeemed and free in Christ.
There is absolutely nothing that ever compares. That's why Paul's writing this letter. He's writing this letter because he wanted Philemon to have some information. He wanted Philemon to know that Onesimus had been captured. Not by the law, but by the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. He had been captured by the gospel. It is estimated that there were about 800,000 people in Rome at the time. And so Onesimus runs away from Philemon's house. He's thinking, man, I'm going to go a thousand miles from nowhere where nobody knows me. And I can just start over. New life away from my old life. And that's exactly what happened. It just didn't really happen the way he thought it was going to go. Some of us know exactly what this means, right? You're taking a, a random vacation in Moose Jaw, Canada. You're there for, you know, a week, and, and you're over at Felligan and Sons Meat Market, and you're waiting for them to wrap up your breakfast sausage and your bacon ends, and, and you start talking to the guy next to you, you know, just strike up a conversation. And, and just a few seconds later, you realize that Paxton Hollyfield, the kid who played Little League ball with you and sat next to you in Miss Travis's biology class, this guy's his first cousin. I mean, it's amazing, you know? And all of a sudden, you, you've made a, a small world. <laughs> does that just happen to me? Come on, some of y'all, that, that does happen, right? I did have a similar Canada story, but it was a little different. Onesimus goes a thousand miles away from home he, he, he shows up in this city of 800,000 people, and somehow, some way, he bumps into the one guy that led his boss man to Jesus. There's no probability for that. That is, that is just the crazy, maddening grace of God. Or maybe it was different. Maybe he knew exactly where he was going. Maybe he had heard so many stories about Paul around the campfire at Philemon's that he was like, man, I, I got to go find this guy. If I can just find Paul, man, Philemon thinks so highly of him. Surely, maybe Paul can find a way to, to get me free. There's no probability for that either, <laughs> even if that happened. I mean, even if that happened, that, that you have a runaway slave that makes it more than a 1,000 miles without being spotted or captured by any law enforcement, without being beaten and left for dead by criminals, without starving to death because he ran out of money or food, all of there's no probability for it. No matter how he made it to Rome, it's just pure, crazy, maddening grace that Onesimus made it to Rome and met Paul. It's really unbelievable. We don't know the details of how he met Paul, but we know he met Paul, and we know he heard the gospel, and we know he got saved. And when Onesimus shows back up at Philemon's house, he's no longer condemned by God. When he shows back up at Philemon's house, his life has been altered by the gospel. And that's why Paul writes this letter. He wants Philemon to hear that his runaway slave has been rescued. He wants to hear that he's been captured. And he's going to appeal to him to do something. 
what is he going to appeal to him to do? He's going to ask Philemon to forgive him. He's going to ask Philemon to set him free from all of his rebellious runaway sin. Again, remember, this is the guy who has broken his trust. It's cost him money. He stole from him. He did him wrong. And Paul says, I I want you to set him free. I want you to forgive him of his sin to you. And what does Paul use as motivation? Listen to what he says in verse 11. Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Paul has a great play on words here. The the meaning of the name Onesimus, it means profitable or beneficial or useful. So it's a great little play here. Philemon, I know that Onesimus has not been profitable to you. I know that he hasn't been beneficial to you. I know he hasn't been useful to you because he ran away and he left you high and dry. But Philemon, I want you to know that he is very profitable and very beneficial and very useful to you now. Why? Because his life had been changed. His life had been altered by the gospel. He wasn't just a runaway slave. He was a different person. Listen, that's what it means to be saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to to have a life that feels useless become useful? What does it mean to have a life that feels unprofitable to become profitable? What does it mean for a life that feels worthless? To have so much worth and so much value and, and so much love. What does it mean to be a new creature? What does it mean to be a new creation in real life? Maybe this picture will help. On December 7th, 1941, more than 350 Imperial Japanese planes attacked Pearl Harbor. 2,403 people, Americans, died in that attack. 132 days later, the United States responded to the attacks at Pearl Harbor with a raid. It's most commonly known as the Doolittle Raid. 80 volunteers, the Doolittle Raiders, they volunteered to go on an extremely dangerous, really seemingly impossible mission to attack areas in and around Tokyo. One of those volunteers was Sergeant Jacob DeShazer. Part of the reason that he volunteered is because he was so angry, he was so bitter about the attack at Pearl Harbor. He said at one time that he didn't care if all the people of Japan died in the attack that they were about to launch. The Sajer was one of eight of Doolittle Raiders who were captured, held prisoner by the Japanese. He was beaten, he was starved, he was tortured. For 40 months he was a prisoner, 34 of those 40 months he found himself in solitary confinement. This is what Deshazer said. My hatred 
for the enemy nearly drove me crazy. But then something happened in his life. He goes on. My thoughts turned toward what I heard about Christianity, changing hatred between human beings into brotherly love, and I was gripped with a strange longing to examine the Christian's Bible to see if I could find the secret. I begged my captors to get a Bible for me. At last, in the month of May 1944, a guard brought me the book but told me I could have it only for three weeks. I eagerly began to read its pages. Chapter after chapter gripped my heart. On June 8, 1944, Deshazer was captured again. But he was captured by the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. He confessed his sin. He repented of his sin. And he found the salvation that Jesus still freely offers. This is what he says. How my heart rejoiced in my newness of spiritual life, even though my body was suffering so terribly from the physical beatings and lack of food. But suddenly, I discovered that God had given me new spiritual eyes, and that when I looked at the enemy officers and guards who had starved and beaten my companions and me so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed to loving pity. Only four of those eight prisoners made it out of captivity. The Sazer was one of them. They were rescued in 1940, 1945. He went back to the States, went to seminary, got married. And then he volunteered for his second dangerous mission. He went back to Japan as a missionary to tell people about Jesus. He wrote a a little booklet. The name of his booklet was, I was a prisoner of Japan. And thousands of people in Japan received that little book and were able to read it. And one of those people was Mitsuo Fuchida. He was standing in a train station somewhere and, and somebody gave him this little booklet. And the thing that captured his heart as he read that little booklet, was was the words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. In September of 1949, Fuchida was captured by the gospel. He was captured by the, the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. He repented and confessed his sins, and he received the salvation that Jesus still freely offers. Some of you know the twist of this story. He followed the path of Deshazza and went to be a missionary in Asia, but the twist of the story is that Fuchida was the commander of the air fleet that attacked Pearl Harbor. Two men, two men whose lives were completely wrapped up in bitterness and anger and vicious death. Two men who experienced the most extreme things 
that war does on the earth. But two men who were rescued and experienced the most extreme satisfaction that can ever be brought to a soul. They were captured by the gospel. Their lives were changed. And it was changed once and for all. These two guys met eventually. They ministered together. They spoke at places together. They shared their stories of forgiveness with many. Fuchita wrote his own little booklet called From Pearl Harbor to Calvary. This is what he wrote about Jesus. Jesus is the only one who was powerful enough to change my life and inspire it with his thoughts. He was the only answer to Jake DeShazer's tormented life, and he is the only answer for young people today. That's still true, whether you're young or old. Fuchita died in 1976 at the age of 74. DeShazer died in 2008 at the age of 95. This is what DeShazer said about Fuchita, though. I saw him just before he died. We shared in that good, wonderful thing that Christ has done. What's that? What is that good, wonderful thing that Christ had done in the lives of these two soldiers? This was the good thing. They went from being murderous, tortured, useless souls to being useful and highly prized and dearly loved and deeply saved. How did that happen? Because those two men heard the same words from Jesus that he spoke one day to a man who was paralyzed. Jesus said on that day, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Has your heart, has your soul really heard those words from Jesus? If so, then God has called you to forgive. He's called you to forgive. Why? Don't miss this. You have run out of the grave. You are no longer condemned. There is no condemnation on you. Therefore, you give no condemnation to others. So you forgive Because you've been forgiven. Christian, we forgive when it's hard, when it's difficult, when it's stressful, when we don't want to, when we'll have to forgive that scoundrel again tomorrow too. But we forgive because your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. 
your sins are forgiven.